Hello, and welcome to Exploring Health Equity. In this podcast, we'll hear from community members, doctors, professors, and more on urban health disparities. From the Rodham Institute at George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences in Washington, D.C., I'm Diana Flott. And I'm David Flott. Art and medicine initially do not seem to intersect significantly, but integrating the arts into medical education and treatments can improve health outcomes. Art and other humanities are increasingly being incorporated into medical education to provide an often overlooked perspective that focuses on the patient experience. A Tulane University study showed that increased engagement with arts and humanities in medical school promoted empathy and decreased burnout. Medical students have also reported arts courses as helping them learn to be more intentional about noticing cues and reflecting on their interpretation. In addition to incorporating art into future clinicians' educations, it can be a useful tool for teaching children about health and wellness. Based in Columbia Heights, Centronia is an educational organization providing affordable early childhood education, professional development for educators, and family support services in a bilingual and multicultural context. Elizabeth Bruce is a writer, educator, theater artist, and arts producer who works on their community arts programs. We primarily serve the very young child and the families of those children. Our constituency is primarily low and moderate income working families. We have many immigrant children from Latin America as well as Ethiopia, Africa, as well as U.S.-born children from across the city of D.C. My particular workshop is targeted to three- to five-year-olds. It is about introducing science and health and wellness issues to very young children through the power of narrative, the power of theater. We go on pretend journeys. There's a science problem. For example, the teddy bear is sick and we have to become the doctors and veterinarians and go to the laboratory and the doctor's office and examine the teddy bear, assess her symptoms, take a throat swab and culture it in a petri dish and then we have to determine what kind of bacteria is making the teddy bear sick and find the appropriate medical response, whether it's a medicine or whether it's a health practice or a wellness practice. We got the opportunity to see her workshop in action. Good morning, dental scientists. Okay, gentle super doctors. Now, here come the stethoscopes. We have to examine the At a theoretical level, the Theatrical Journey Project is very much an example of constructivist education so that the, uh, the child learns through by doing as opposed to by listening. So it, it is an experiential way of learning something. You don't learn because the teacher tells you. You learn because you're doing something and you're making discoveries and, and you're kind of immersed in a full-body experience of, of a 
either a content area or a skill development. My experience is theater is so much fun. Playing is so much fun. Children obviously learn through play. So it doesn't even register as, as learning in the same way. It's not, there's no didacticism to a theatrical journey. It's simply uh, in encouraging the child to enter a state of, quote, flow that is really deeply, deeply nurturing, deeply relaxing, deeply soothing. I think the experience of the young child in being in a creative and, and artistically connected experience is not like, it's a different kind of learning. It, it feeds a different part of the brain and the body and the emotions. So I think it accomplishes a, a larger purpose, but it does so without encountering the kind of resistance that school often <laughs> encounters. Science is not a subject area, content area, that is really deeply taught in early childhood. So I wanted to be, introduce children to some of the fundamentals of science and also, most importantly, to, to uh, develop a situation in which children image themselves as skilled science problem solvers and really democratize science spaces for the children at Centronia. Ms. Bruce expanded on how Centronia's programs have impacted their children's health habits. Because when the teddy bear is sick, we have to figure out how to help her or him recover his or her health. And so we talk a lot about healthy food and hydration and, you know, getting enough sleep and what are the healthy habits. Um, and the children increasingly ask for really, really healthy foods, you know, carrots and broccoli and beans and things. So, so in, in fact, they're in, a, in the preparation to going on a journey, we, we sit in a circle and we do a variety of physical and, and uh, vocal warm-ups. And sometimes we pack our imaginary backpack with supplies that we'll need. And increasingly, children put in really, really healthy food. So it's nice. There's not a lot of soda and candy anymore. There's a lot of broccoli and carrots. <laughs> Another way that art can be incorporated into medicine is through art therapy. When patients are guided through artistic activities like painting or dancing, either individually or in groups, to improve either their symptoms or other aspects of their lives. This form of psychotherapy arose in its current form in the mid-1900s. Studies have found that relatively short-term interventions in art therapy can significantly improve the emotional state and perceived symptoms of cancer patients. Additionally, studies examining the effectiveness of art therapy in patients with advanced heart failure, obesity, and HIV-AIDS indicated statistically significant improvements in some aspects of the patient's lives, indicating that there is promise that needs to be further explored. We spoke to Professor Juliet King, Associate Professor of Art Therapy at George Washington University, Adjunct Associate Professor in the Indiana University School of Medicine, Department of Neurology, and Licensed Art Therapist, to learn more about the impact of art therapy. When we create imagery, um, we are able to tap into different aspects of ourselves that aren't accessible 
with words alone. A great example or an easy way to understand is to think about the role of trauma. And when a person experiences trauma, then the way that that trauma is experienced often happens at a less conscious level. And the memories of that trauma are stored in parts of our bodies and in our less conscious selves. And those memories also become fragmented. So it makes it very difficult to tell a cohesive narrative of what happened, which as you can imagine, it makes it difficult to explain your feelings and explain where you're coming from. And we have a lot of different systems in our body that react physically to elements of trauma, which make it even more challenging because it's easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to become very anxious. It's easy to become hypervigilant um, when you're experiencing those feelings and those memories. The ways of going about treatment are so varied, but ultimately we have a lot of really solid theory, um, what we could call theory of intervention as to how uh, to go about working with people. So the beautiful thing about art therapy, or one of the beautiful things is that at least in the beginning, words are not necessary. So if I'm working with a seven-year-old child that doesn't have the verbal capacity to explain where they're coming from, they might be able to draw a picture about it, right? And so what we do is we look at a range of different materials and methods, and we identify if that child, if we're working on impulse control, then I'm going to pick different kinds of materials that are going to help the child learn impulse control within the moment or within the process. So many symptoms of oppositionality or attention deficit disorder in children are actually symptoms of trauma. And how do we address that? You know, not necessarily from a medical model, um, but from more of a community-based cultural perspective. So oftentimes we are part of a larger team, like an interdisciplinary team. One particularly striking experience Professor King had that illustrates the potential impact of art therapy occurred when she was working with veterans in Indianapolis. I was working with a group of people that had a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury. The, this is like the fourth week that we were in the group. And at this point, I wanted to challenge the group with the sense of control and how it is that they, you know, might manage themselves emotionally. And so I offered them a very, what we call regressive material of, of watercolor, which as you can imagine, is hard to control, especially if you're not familiar with it. So I asked them to do this watercolor wash. And um, one of the people in the group was getting so angry. And he was saying, oh, man, you know, this is so annoying. I can't control it. It's on um, my pain is all over the page. And I was like, right. That's the point. You know, like that's how watercolor is. Um, and his ears were red and he was getting angry. And somebody in the group was like, hey, is, are, are you OK? And he's like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I'm like, well, how can you possibly be fine? You're like angry and your ears are red and you're cursing. And he's like, ah, oh, this is what I do. I pretend that everything's okay when it's not. And so the group goes on. And, you know, in that example, he was able to talk about how he typically um, is not okay. And he, you know, goes about his life saying that he is. And that's an important thing for a person to be able to verbalize, um, or it was for him at this time. 
And so later in the group, they were given the same materials um, and asked to create a symbol for themselves. And so when it came time to talk about what it is that they made, he had painted this heart and um, like an anatomically correct heart. And in the background was all black. And he's like, this is my heart. And I could call it the heart of darkness. And this is how I feel about things. And he said, but you know, my heart doesn't have those things on it. And there was a nurse in a group and she said, like, like arteries? And he's like, yeah, my, my heart doesn't have that because I'm completely disconnected, right? I, and I don't let myself feel. And so that sparked a whole discussion, you know, about how, oh yeah, you know, other people in the group were feeling that way too. And in such a short period of time, the ability for someone to put words to emotions that are very difficult through the symbol that he made. And then the, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but the ability to control paint when you feel like pretty much everything in your life is not in control actually is a big deal. And it's an internalization of a feeling that is really healthy. And so that's very much the way that we work is we use again, the art process and what people make as a way to help people through what it is that they're working on and practice that. Professor King also elaborated on how she believes art therapy can impact health disparities. I think that um, there's a way to connect with one another and understand one another that goes beyond our consciousness. I believe that um, art and art making really taps into what we could call a collective unconscious that can kind of uh, break down barriers and help people under understand and see each other from different perspectives that words and just behaviors can't necessarily do. And I think it also offers opportunity for healing and growth um, that again, go beyond the boundaries of a traditional uh, model of, of healing. And we've seen that, you know, we, if you know about the National Organization for Arts and Health and a lot of the work that the IAM lab is doing at Hopkins is really breaking the barriers of um, accessibility to treatment, um, connecting with people in the communities that might not have access to services as readily as others. Um, and so I think the processes of art and certainly the therapeutic components make it easier to connect and support. Bringing art into medicine has the potential to improve community health on several levels, including by making health education for children more engaging and as a therapeutic activity. By increasing the effectiveness of preventative wellness education and improving mental health, both major issues in health disparities, art can be incredibly helpful as we work towards health equity. This podcast series is led by David Slott and Diana Slott at the Rodham Institute. We'd like to thank the Rodham Institute at the George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences and the Johns Hopkins Digital Media Center. If you'd like to find out more or donate to the Rodham Institute, please visit our website at smhs.gwu.edu slash Rodham Institute. Thanks for tuning in to Exploring Health Equity.